have my trust in no book. And good thing I have my dear old thing. A new hotel and residential project is proposed for downtown Asheville. New hotels are blooming in and around Asheville like wildflowers in the spring. Some are new construction. Other projects, particularly in the River Arts District, plan to repurpose older buildings. But the connecting thread is undeniable. This city's dependence and deference to tourism is only deepening. This is a rhetorical question from locals to tourism leaders. Why are you continuing to advertise our town to the world when we have all these hotels going up and more and more tourists coming to town? We have given over downtown Asheville to tourists. I'm Matt Pikin. My guest today on The Overlook is Jason Sanford, the founding journalist of Ash Vegas. Nobody has a more keen eye on developments in Asheville's hotel industry than Jason. We talk about the political maneuvering that paved Asheville's hotel boom, break down the restricted waterfall of money coming in every year through occupancy taxes, and the efforts of handcuffed city leaders to address issues connected with the hotel rush. Approaching tax time, and Hannah says a lot of freelancers miss out on a potentially big deduction, mileage. You have one car and you use that for personal stuff. Advertisements don't sound like ads on the Overlook. They sound like conversations, because they are. For how people can keep track of mileage that is deductible versus mileage that isn't. It's such a dumb answer, but yeah, get an app. <laughs> If you market a business, or even yourself, make a great impression by advertising on Asheville's hottest show. You can be a sponsor of The Overlook for as little as $75. Ask to learn more by messaging me at matt at podavl.com. That's matt at podavl.com. I began my conversation with Jason Sanford by asking what he first noticed eight years ago that ignited a trend in hotel development that Asheville is still experiencing. There are a couple of things. The first was that the Biltmore Estate built a second hotel on its property. I thought that was very inter interesting. They have had a beautiful hotel on their property where people can stay. But to add a second hotel on their property, that caught my attention. There must be something happening here in, in the tourism world. Then once word got out about that, that was around 2015, a year or so after the Biltmore Hotel project came to light, local hoteliers got together, went to state legislators, and asked them to pass a bill to increase Buncombe County's room tax. What they saw going on, Matt, was a coming wave of new hotel construction, even back then. And their reason for going to the state legislature to ask for a room tax increase was to raise more money, to pay for advertising, to fill all these new rooms that they expected to come online. And that is the seed for the conversation that we've been having over the past eight to 10 years. When that conversation first came up about going to the legislature to ask for more money, to ask for a hotel tax, was there any conversation about what that tax should be used for? At the time, obviously hoteliers and others want to use, and the Convention Visitors Bureau, Explore Asheville, they're very motivated to have tourists come here. Was there any opposition or at least competing lines of thought about what a hotel tax should go for? 
there was not, Matt. <laughs> That's a great question because the hoteliers got together and made their move without really communicating with city council or county commissioners, local elected officials at large. And that caused a real rift. Local city and county leaders would have loved to have that conversation at that time, but it didn't happen because hoteliers went straight to their lobbying effort, got the tax increased without changing how it could be spent. That's really interesting, and I guess it's practical if you look from the hotel standpoint, what does the city and county have to do with it? We need to go to the legislature to get any sort of approval for a hotel tax, so why bother going to local legislators? And in a way, it also shows you can make a criticism to local city and county leaders. Why didn't they think to go to the legislature on their own and ask for a hotel tax that they could be used for local infrastructure to accommodate some of the impacts of hotel tourism. So can't we look at city and county leaders, why didn't you have the foresight? And it took a, a capitalistic lobbyist effort to make something like this happen. I think you can blame a lack of foresight on both sides. Definitely city and county leaders wanted that conversation and they could have instigated, they could have started that conversation on their own. They didn't. The hotelier group could have had that conversation. They clearly didn't see far enough ahead to the conversation and the pushback that we've been seeing from the local community in terms of impacts and how increased tourism, increased hotel development is having on our community. Jason, you just said a little bit ago that it created a rift. Can you speak to what was the relationship before this windfall of money, the relationship between hotels and other businesses that depend on tourism and locals who feed that industry in terms of employment, other services? My sense, Matt, is that relationship was sort of go-along, get-along relationship. I think there is a deep understanding that Asheville and Buncombe County is a has a long-standing history of being a center for tourism. We, it's written in our pages. So folks were just going along, getting along at that point, and it was an okay relationship. We have so many small businesses that rely on tourists, all our restaurants and now our beautiful brewery scene. Many people rely on the local tourism industry, and that, I think, feeds into that pretty good relationship but we got to that point where we saw this new wave of construction happening on the tourism front, and then things fell apart. So you're saying there was a simpatico relationship in a sense. And it seems if the money part of it, the, specifically the hotel tax and where that money is directed, if that were done hypothetically in a different way, even the development of more hotel rooms and more hotels wouldn't necessarily create a rift because it would create more business for locals and more money going into a larger constituency for that money. So now looking at that line that you've drawn from eight years ago to the second hotel on the Biltmore property, what did you see developing after that? Well, we then see a, a whole raft of new hotel development happening and it was concentrated in downtown Asheville, which made it really obvious, really right up in people's faces, with Asheville being the hub, really, of economic activity for Western North Carolina. Hotel after hotel being approved and being built. 
with no breaks, really. Why would there need to be a break? To, now, we can look at a lot of different reasons. We, have, we don't have the streets to accommodate them. We, there's a lot of infrastructure that you can point to that's affected. But what was some of the pushback from the public, maybe even to city council and to others who are in a position to put the brakes on some of this hotel development? And we'll get to when they did do this moratorium at one point. But what, from your vantage point, what was the public outcry around this? If there was, and the public outcry was why, to the, this is a rhetorical question, or maybe a very specific question to be answered to, from locals to tourism leaders, why are you continuing to advertise our town to the world when we have all these hotels going up and more and more tourists coming to town? Because that's what happened. When you build the hotels, more people come. And it was just a, an inflection point there eight, 10 years ago where the longstanding tourism marketing efforts from our tourism officials got to a point where Asheville is really suddenly on the map of the world, of uh, so many more people. And local folks are saying, let's stop. It's too much. You're starting to affect my quality of life. I can't find a parking space. There's a long line at my favorite restaurant and I can't get in when I want to. You're touching on something that is a very visible effect of it is that downtown, I think many local people, this is observationally, I don't know if there's tangible data to support this, but just observationally, downtown has become a no-go zone for locals, unless you have a show at the Orange Peel or the Wortham or the Cherokee Center, that most people avoid the very notion, if you live here, you avoid the notion of dining downtown, of just go, being downtown, going to a brewery downtown. We have given over downtown Asheville to tourists. That wasn't always the case, Matt. There was a long-standing conversation when Asheville was in its doldrums in the 70s and 80s and nothing was happening. The conversation was about getting people to move and live downtown. That was always thought of as the key to bringing life back to our downtown and having a healthy economic balance to downtown. And we saw there are a number of condo projects, downtown living projects, that happened in the late 90s, early 2000s. But again, in the mid 2000s or 20 teens, there was this move to give over downtown to tourists. Do you think some of this was that even though maybe it was in the conversation that we need downtown to be claimed by locals, locals weren't doing it. Could the hotel industry and the tourism industry make the argument like, Downtown was dead until we revitalized it. And at least now, tourists are making it their own. Locals didn't seem to want to do it. Could they understandably make that argument? I don't think they could, Matt. And I haven't heard them try to make that argument. Again, going back to the Asheville's history, when Asheville was down and out, it was locals who came together in one big effort to do a couple of things. One was save a huge portion of downtown from being flattened and turned into a mall. That was literally a plan floated. That was defeated. The other sort of big effort that happened was locals getting together to start a little festival that they hoped would bring people to town and spur economic activity and have more shoppers and local businesses and more diners and local restaurants. That was the famous Bell Share Festival, which had a 
glorious 30 plus year run up until about almost 10 years or so ago. So hotels are mushrooming. And at one point, the city council put a moratorium. Talk about this moratorium. Can you describe what happened and what was the impetus behind it? Was it public pressure or was it city council themselves observing we need to get a handle on this? I think the moratorium happened because so much public pressure was building on city leaders to do something to stop it. I think city leaders also recognized the fact that they needed to take a step back and actually look at zoning rules and the regulations in place just to take it all in and get a handle. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, it was a one-year moratorium on any hotel development that, had, right. that hadn't broken ground yet. Is that what that That's was? That's right. And that, was that in 2018? That's right. And did anything tangible come out of this moratorium in terms of policy, that the city enacted new regulations or new, new guidelines for what they would approve, what they wouldn't approve? <laughs> a, a couple of tangible things did come out of that whole discussion, Matt. They changed the rules so that every new hotel development didn't have to come to them to vote up or down. So up until that point, every project went to city council and almost every time city council approved it. So they changed those rules so that hotel developers did not have to, if they did some things on their own, they wouldn't have to go to city council to have a decision. Time out on that. Yeah. So if city council is in my way of hearing what you're saying, they're abdicating yes. their responsibility to, be, to vet these projects. Who was vetting these projects then? It was city staff. If you're a developer and you meet certain XYZ rules, I, I don't think the city would say they were abdicating their responsibility. They would say, we have a new set of rules in place, and if you meet these things, you will be approved. You can so have approval. They're saying, in a sense, city council would defend that, saying it's uniform standards now. Correct. We're taking the politics out of this That's and just right. creating a uniform set of standards. That's right. And so relying on the city planning department, the planners who and handle zoning, they're responsible for seeing whether certain T's are crossed and I's are dotted. That's right. And I think the other impact out of those the rules coming out of the hotel construction stoppage was that in general, the rules in place for a developer to bypass city council forced developers to build their new hotels outside of downtown, or if they were going to be in the center of downtown, they would have to be smaller. So this moratorium only dealt with downtown hotels. This didn't deal with hotels. Hotels in the city of Asheville. Oh, yep. in the city. In so the city. even in the Rad, West Asheville, yes. anywhere, so it had to do that. So what has happened since this moratorium has been lifted? Since the moratorium has been lifted, we've been seeing a fairly, again, steady, stream of new hotel projects come through the pipeline. They've been smaller. We've seen this phenomenon of the condo tell, a condo building where it could be a mix of people who live in their condos, but also a number of rooms, 30, 40, 50 rooms, that could be rented as short-term rentals, thus the condo tell term. I've noticed that's happening in a lot of cities where there's a mix of short-term stay and permanent residence. Even the Eris Hotel has that, right? Where yes. the Eris, well, there's some on the upper levels, those are like expensive, very expensive apartments. That's right, and, and then in the, sort of in the middle of that tall building is the boutique hotel aspect. 
You might know me for the stories I produced for Asheville's public radio station, and I'm thrilled to have you listening to The Overlook. Now I can help tell the story of your business or nonprofit through a podcast. A narrative series or ongoing show is a unique way to shape the public's understanding of your work and impact in the community. I also help independent podcasters launch or boost their own shows. Find out more through my production company, Podcast Asheville, at podavl.com. I started the second half of my conversation with Jason Sanford by asking whether the Tourism Development Authority is answerable to any agency as to how and where it spends the money coming in through occupancy taxes. They are only answerable in the sense that city and county leaders appoint members to the TDA board. They appoint the board membership. But once the TDA is in the room working on its budget year to year, they make all the decisions about how that money is being spent. Now, we can get to another point a year ago when the state legislature came and made changes to the law that affects how the TDA can spend its money, and we will start to see the effects of that change this year and in coming years. Can you tell us what some of those changes are? Yes. The two biggest changes are the funding formula, for lack of a better word, When you look at the pie of room tax money, it used to be a 75-25% split in terms of 75% of the money, the room tax money collected would be spent by the TDA to bring more people and put heads in beds. 25% of that money would go to a fund that would build capital projects, again, with the hope that it would attract tourists, but many of those capital projects also benefited local residents like greenway projects and park projects, for example. So it changed that. The split of that pie is now 66-33. So a little bit more money for the locals, a little bit less money to advertise to the world. The other significant change is that the money that is spent locally is now divided into a couple of different funds. There's still the capital project fund for new projects. Now there's also a fund that they're calling sort of the legacy fund, I think. And we have yet to see how the TDA will define how that money will be spent. But that is sort of a new pool of money where a lot of locals are looking to have spent truly on infrastructure type projects, projects that in a much greater way benefit local residents. It's fascinating too that you mentioned the TDA uh, members who are they're appointed, but doesn't the hotel industry get a certain number of seats on the TDA? In fact, a majority of seats, aren't they held by the hoteliers themselves? That's right, and, it, and that's by state law. It defines who holds those seats, and all but one or two seats are set aside for hotel owners. We look at, obviously, what's happening here in Asheville. Does the state legislature impose the same restrictions on the tourism bureaus of other regions in the state? In general, they do. When you start looking at how other tourism development agencies function across the state, they vary to a somewhat significant degree. But in general, the guidelines for, say, going back to how that pool of money is split, the state legislature has guardrails and applies that to everybody in the state of North Carolina. 
are there specific proposals from the rest of us and the people who are affected, locals and people who work in the tourism industry, are there specific proposals that have been put before the TDA about how they would like to use some of this money? That's a really good question. Up until this point, I'm not aware of specific proposals from locals to the TDA officials about how to use that money. But again, going back to our earlier point about the change in legislation that will allow the TDA to change the way it spends some of its money, at the Buncombe County TDA's meeting in January, a group of local service workers came to the TDA and said, we want you to use that money for housing, for affordable housing, for service workers that work in your hotels because Asheville is so expensive for us, we can't afford to live here. We can't afford to be here. And if you, we're not here, your industry will crumble. They made a really good argument. We'll see what comes of that. Again, it comes down to how I think the TDA decides to spend this, its pool of money, but we'll see. Do you know what the occupancy rate is of hotels here? What percentage of rooms are filled week by week? Yes. In its sort of calendar year end report, TDA officials ended 2022, I think with about a 75% occupancy rate. Is that considered high or healthy? They often refer back to 2019 as a benchmark year because of COVID and its effects. It crashed the tourism industry for a while, then it bounced back in a couple of different ways. But roughly speaking, occupancy levels are back and maybe slightly above 2019 levels. And up until 2019, it was higher. I would ask the hotels, why do you have to keep marketing to such an extensive rate when people seem to be coming of their own volition? They will say that it's because we have more and more hotels coming online. But wouldn't that be an argument? Why build more hotels if, we're, if we can't sustain more hotels? If the occupancy rate is 75%, okay, wouldn't that tell a potential hotelier where we might have challenges getting people to fill these rooms? 75% occupancy rate is a pretty good occupancy rate industry-wide. There are other metrics that they look at, Matt, and we don't have to get too far into the weeds here, but there are a couple of other interesting metrics. One is the average daily room rate because supply and demand affects the rates that hotels apply to their rooms. So the average daily rate that hotels charge in Buncombe County has held steady. Obviously it decreased during COVID. Now it's back to where it was. And I wanna say that rate is roughly 130 bucks a night on average. The other key metric that these guys look at, Matt, is something called RevPAR, and that is revenue per room. And I think there's a formula for how they look at actually how much money they make on the rooms that they rent. And that number has been steady, if not also increasing. So they're looking at those metrics. And you could make the argument too, Matt, that the hoteliers out of town are looking in Asheville. They're looking at all these metrics and saying, oh, there's opportunity to build another hotel. With 75% occupancy rates and good average daily rate room rates that we can charge, there's room for us to build more hotels. One of the things that comes up in the specter of this is Airbnb. And there is a prohibition of Airbnbs in Asheville, correct me if I'm wrong here, in which 
the owner of the home is not living in. That the That's owner right. has to be in the home if you're going to Airbnb any portion of that. Yep. And I understand there's effort or at least talk at the legislature of making that prohibition illegal. What do you think is going to happen there? And, and if there is a change to that, what would that do to the whole hotel industry and tourism industry here? There's going to be an ongoing effort in Raleigh to try and get those rules changed. I don't have a good sense, Matt, of where that legislative momentum is in Raleigh. I just see what's, I'm closely watching what's happening here in Asheville and Buncombe County. And obviously city and county leaders want to maintain some control. They want to have some ability over regulating short-term rentals. At the same point, Matt, TDA officials in their first meeting back in January noted that for the first time ever, there are now more short-term rental rooms available to rent in Buncombe County than there are hotel rooms. We're talking about overall room nights, the big sort of overall room nights available to rent. And for years, forever, there have always been more hotel rooms. We, the Airbnb phenomenon comes up and it was growing. Asheville was already big on the map of Airbnb folks renting out their homes for short-term rental visitors. COVID hit and just lit a fire under the short-term rentals. People during COVID didn't necessarily want to stay in a hotel with other people, but they sure loved the idea of renting a room in a house and Asheville was top on their list. So with that, the reason this is important, Matt, is because this is goes back to where the room tax cash comes from. And if you look at that pie, that revenue pie, it's now slightly in favor, 53% to 47%, 53% of that money coming from short-term rentals, 47% of that total pie coming from hotel room rentals. So short-term rentals, even Airbnbs have to pay that room tax that would go that Correct. goes to the city. Yes. And does that go to the TDA? Yes. So let's say you're, you own a house in West Asheville or anywhere in town. You have an Airbnb, a room that's your airbnb out in your house, legally, according to city guidelines. Yes. There's a room tax that goes to the TDA? Yes. It hasn't always been that way. Again, you have to go back, again, probably five or six years when the Airbnb phenomenon takes off. Maybe it's a little bit longer than that. But for the Asheville area, people are like, wow. That there's a lot of business going on there. And at that time, Airbnb was not paying room tax to many municipalities. And folks started taking note. And Airbnb, I think, reluctantly went along and said, okay, we will start collecting room taxes on your behalf and paying them out to TDAs. See, now here would have been an opportunity, perhaps, to take, okay, we're going to do a room tax. But why are we beholden to the TDA in this? That's a group of hoteliers, and it's a lobbying effort. It's purely turf protection. And so it seems to me, tell me if I'm wrong and how I'm reading this, but by having a room tax for Airbnbs that goes to the TDA, that's mollifying the hoteliers and the TDA. That's, we're, you're still getting money out of this. We're all in partnership together rather than it being competition. And if there is a room tax that would be attached to Airbnbs that isn't beholden to hoteliers, and you're saying it's a 53 to 47% shift, that'd be tens of millions of dollars that could be used by city and county entities 
Let the hoteliers keep their TDA money, their room tax, but anything that comes in for Airbnb is a room tax, but then city and county officials can use it for the interest of residents. Yeah. Why can't that happen? <laughs> That's a great question. That conversation would have had to have happened back at the time when folks were looking to tap Airbnb to make them pay up. That conversation didn't happen. I think probably for the point you exactly mentioned that that money mollifies the hotel industry, they quote unquote work together and wow. here we are. So now where are we seeing hotel development that you see on the horizon or happening now that we haven't seen? You mentioned the River Arts District. So talk about what we're going to be seeing there in the next year, two years, three years that will change the landscape of the city. What's interesting about the 520 or so new hotel rooms that are supposed to come online this year, Matt, and over the next couple of years is that these hotels are really unique and for the most part, not new construction, but repurposing existing buildings. So there are two buildings right there on Robert Street. I think it used to be called the Kent Building. That is what is going to be turned into a boutique hotel. It's a mixed use. There'll be restaurants and hopefully some affordable artist studios, not a lot, but a few, and 70, 60, 70 room hotel. Next door to that is the Phil Mechanic Gallery but it is connected to that hotel piece. And I'm not sure, I think the plan is to put another restaurant in the Phil Mechanic building. I don't think there will actually be hotel rooms, oh, okay. but it will be a part of the complex there. So that'll be the first hotel, the first new hotel in the River Arts District since the days when there was like a train station depot hotel down on Depot Street 100 years ago. You have to think that this is the first, like in a, like almost a cancer cell that we're that it's just going to multiply and change the very face of the rad it will there's a lot happening in the rad that will change that area including a couple of massive mixed-use apartment complexes that will bring hundreds of residents there matt again mirroring downtown when you look at the rad for the first time ever people living down there so we'll see what happens there but going back to your point about a couple of the other new hotels coming online that are really unique. The Restoration Asheville Hotel, again, right across Pritchard Park in a former bank space, is truly being turned into a tourist palace. It's only the second restoration brand hotel in the United States, the first being in Charleston. And it is, I forget their exact marketing map, but it's like an understated luxury. But there is going to be a coffee shop, a restaurant, a grand ballroom up on top of the fourth floor with floor-to-ceiling windows. Down in the basement, there will be an ode to the Asheville's brewing history with a bunch of beer on tap and a two-lane bowling alley for folks who want to hang out down there. So people will never have to leave the hotel. They can just <laughs> right. go to the hotel. They have everything there. And again, what's interesting <laughs> is for the de hotel developers is it's a way for them to at least say, and in part, it would be, we're friendly to locals as well. 
come hang out in our draft house, have a beer, oh, I see. bowl a little bit. You don't have to stay in the hotel to <laughs> use it. Yeah, we only have two lanes. We have to get on a waiting list for two weeks in advance <laughs> to use a lane. So that will be opening supposedly at the end of March. It still looks to me like they've got a lot of work to do, but that will be opening March, April. Another unique hotel has an unusual name. It's called Zelda Dearest, and it is actually Again, another little complex of three buildings on Biltmore Avenue. As you're headed south out of downtown, on your right on, along Biltmore Avenue, are three old, they used to be homes, old grand houses that for many years served as offices, split up into lawyers' offices, other types of offices. Now they are being completely refurbished and turned into, I think each one will have only 20 or 30 rooms at most, each of the buildings. And it is really being turned into an ode to the 1920s era history of Asheville hmm. when F. Scott Fitzgerald famously worked here and Zelda, Zelda Fitzgerald, Fitzgerald, his wife, was here. She, you know, there's been a lot of recent investigation into her great work as an artist as well. She wasn't just F. Scott's partner. She was a great writer and uh, artist as well. So you're saying some of these projects are at least aesthetically, they're trying to do things that preserve the buildings and you maintain the feel of the area. Yeah, and give a nod to the Asheville's history in a way. So is there, as you look at these developments coming on, we're going to see many hundreds of new rooms. Is there a positive to any of this? Do you see something that, this is more jobs for locals, for, and more jobs for locals who are continuing to be priced out of living downtown. Is there a, a ray of sunshine in any of this or is it more dark clouds on the horizon? <laughs> it, it's definitely not all bad. A big swath of our economic activity in Asheville depends on tourists coming to offer them support. And then we locals get the benefit of having some of that cool stuff like James Beard award-winning restaurants. That we can't afford to eat in. Right. <laughs> but maybe once a year, Matt, in Wait. January with no line, with not a, without being swarmed by tourists, we could pop in and have a nice dinner. And there are our beer industry, our restaurant industry, some of the health and wellness industry that's been popping up that takes people on some pretty cool and unique tours into our mountain trails. I just wonder if we're, if, just like in our environmental crisis, if we've, have we passed the point of no return? Is there any lever of action that residents can take, that city officials can do to work with and lean on? What do our state reps in this region, people who are state representatives, what are they doing? That's a great question. You'll have to get them on your show, okay. Matt, and yeah, put, I will. I put them in the to. hot seat because they face some pretty fierce lobbying in Raleigh from hotel and restaurant, food and beverage. The one movement that I'm seeing goes back to what we talked about earlier with this group of service workers coming before the TDA, asking them to spend money on affordable housing for them. This group has also been lobbying city and county leaders for cheaper parking spaces to be able, because they have to drive into downtown, many more and more so because they can't afford to live downtown. So they want to break on parking and they actually won that concession. So 150 spaces, right? Or something yeah, like that? Yeah. So they're, they've been successful on that front. We're starting to see this group really push for unionizing food and beverage service workers. It's happening 
around the country, including in southern states, which notoriously are hostile to unionization. So will some of those, could some of those efforts be successful? I don't know, we'll see. It does seem like the gap is ever widening and there are few bridges, but there are little things starting to percolate. The process is precious though, it takes up all my time. I want to thank Jason Sanford of Ash Vegas as my guest today. The Asheville band The Resonant Rogues is allowing me to use their maker song as the theme music of The Overlook. The Overlook is a production of Podcast Asheville. New episodes are online 6 a.m. every Monday through Friday. Please follow for free on your favorite podcasting app. I'm Matt Pikin, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook. <laughs>